Chapter 16 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sinkevich. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. 1835-1906 Chapter 16 Lvov, from the moment of the king's arrival, was turned into a real capital of the commonwealth. Together with the king came the greater part of the bishops from the whole country, and all those lay senators who had not served the enemy. The calls already issued summoned also to arms the nobles of Rus, and of the remoter adjoining provinces. They came in numbers and armed with a greater ease, because the Swedes had not been in those regions. Eyes were opened and hearts rose at sight of this general militia, for it reminded one in nothing of that of Great Poland, which at Wistia offered such weak opposition to the enemy. On the contrary, in this case, marched a warlike and terrible nobility, reared from childhood on horseback and in the field, amidst continual attacks of wild Tartars, accustomed to bloodshed and burning, better masters of the sabre than of Latin. These nobles were in fresh training yet, from Khmelnytsky's uprising, which lasted seven years without interval so that there was not a man among them who was not as many times in fire as he had years of life. New swarms of these were arriving continually in Lvov. Some had marched from Bieszkady, full of precipices, others from the Prut, the Dniester and the Seret. Some lived on the steep banks of the Dniester, some on the wide-spreading Bug, some on the Sinuha had not been destroyed from the face of the earth by peasant incursions. Some had been left on the Tartar boundaries. All these hurried at the call of the king to the city of the Lion. Some to march thence against an enemy as yet unknown. The nobles came in from Volinia and from more distant provinces. Such hatred was kindled in all souls by the terrible tidings that the enemy had raised sacrilegious hands on the patroness of the commonwealth in Chenstohova, and the Cossacks dared not raise obstacles, for the hearts were moved in the most hardened, and besides they were forced by the Tartars to beat with a forehead to the king and to renew for the hundredth time their oath of loyalty. A Tartar embassy, dangerous to the enemies of the king, was in Lvov under the leadership of Suba Gazi Bey, offering in the name of the Khan a horde a hundred thousand strong to assist the commonwealth. Of these, forty thousand from near Kamenets could take the field at once, Besides the Tartar embassy, a legation had come from Transylvania to carry through negotiations begun with Rakotsi concerning succession to the throne. 
the ambassador of the emperor, was present. So was the papal nuncio, who had come with the king. Every day deputations arrived from the armies of the Kingdom of Lithuania, from provinces and lands, with declarations of loyalty, and a wish to defend to the death the invaded country. The fortunes of the king increased. The Commonwealth, crushed altogether so recently, was rising before the eyes of all to the wonder of ages and nations. The souls of men were inflamed with thirst for war and retaliation, and at the same time they grew strong. And, as in springtime a warm generous rain melts the snow, so mighty hope melted doubt. Not only did they wish for victory, but they believed in it. New and favorable tidings came in continually, though often untrue, they passed from mouth to mouth. Time after time, men told now of castles recovered, now of battles in which unknown regiments under leaders hitherto, unknown, had crushed the Swedes, now of terrible clouds of peasants sweeping along like locusts against the enemy. The name of Stefan Charnetsky was more and more frequent on every lip, the details in these tidings were often untrue, but taken together they reflected as a mirror what was being done in the whole country. But in Lvov reigned, as it were a continual holiday. When the king came, the city greeted him solemnly. The clergy of the three rites, the councillors of the city, the merchants, the guilds, on the squares and streets, wherever an eye was cast, banners, white, sapphire, purple and gilded, were waving. The Lvov people raised proudly their golden lion on a blue field, recalling with self-praise the scarcely passed Cossack and Tartar attacks. At every appearance of the king, a shout was raised among the crowds, and crowds were never lacking. The population doubled in recent days. Besides senators and bishops, besides nobles, flowed in throngs of peasants also, for the news had spread that the king intended to improve their condition. Therefore, rustic coats and horse blankets were mingled with the yellow coats of the townspeople. The mercantile Armenians, with their swarthy faces, put up booths for merchandise and arms, which the assembled nobles bought willingly. There were many Tartars also with the embassy. There were Hungarians, Wallachians and Austrians. A multitude of people, a multitude of troops, a multitude of different kind of faces, many strange garments in colors brilliant and varied, troops of court servants, hence gigantic grooms, high dukes, janissaries, red cossacks, messengers in foreign costume. The streets were filled from the morning till evening with the noise of men, now passing squadrons of a quota, now divisions of mounted nobles, the cries of command, the shining of armor and naked sabers, the neighing of horses, 
the rumble of cannon, and songs full of threatening and curses for the Swedes. The bells in the churches, Polish, Russian, and Armenian, were tolling continually, announcing to all that the king was in the city, and that Lvov, to its eternal praise, was the first of the capitals that had received the king, the exile. They beat to him with a forehead. Wherever he appeared, caps flew upward, and shouts of Vivat shook the air. They beat with the forehead also before the carriages of bishops, who through the windows blessed the assembled throngs. They bowed to and applauded senators, honoring in them loyalty to the king and country. So the whole city was seething. At night they even burnt on the square piles of wood, at which in spite of cold and frost those men were encamped, who could not find lodgings because of the excessive multitude. The king spent whole days in consultation with senators. Audience was given to foreign embassies, to deputations from provinces and troops. Methods of filling the empty treasury with money were considered. All means were used to rouse war wherever it had not flamed up already. Couriers were flying to the most important towns in every part of the Commonwealth, to distant Prussia, to sacred Imud, to Tishovtsi, to the Hetmans, to Sapieha, who, after the storming of Tikotsin, took his army to the south with forced marches. Couriers went also to Konietzpolsky, who was still with the Swedes. Where it was needful, money was sent. The slothful were roused with manifestos. The king recognized, consecrated, and confirmed the confederation of Tishovtsi and joined it himself. Taking the direction of all affairs into his untiring hands, he labored from morning till night, esteeming the common wealth more than his own rest, his own health. But this was not the limit of his efforts, for he had determined to conclude in his own name, in the name of the estates, a league such that no earthly power could overcome. A league which in the future might serve to reform the commonwealth. The moment for this had come at last. The secret must have escaped from the senators to the nobles, and from the nobles to the peasants, for since morning it had been said that at the hour of services something important would happen, that the king would make some solemn vow concerning, as was said, the condition of the peasants and a confederation with heaven. There were persons, however, who asserted that these were incredible things, without an example in history. But curiosity was excited, and everywhere something was looked for. The day was frosty, clear. Tiny flakes of snow were flying through the air, glittering like sparks. The land infantry of Lvov and the district of Jedaki in blue half-shubas, hemmed with gold, 
and half a Hungarian regiment were drawn out in a long line before the cathedral, holding their muskets at their feet in front of them. Officers passed up and down with staffs in their hands. Between these two lines a many-colored throng flowed into the church, like a river. In front, nobles and knights, after them the senate of the city, with gilded chains on their necks and tapers in their hands. They were led by the mayor, a physician noted throughout the whole province. He was dressed in a black velvet toga and wore a calotte. After the senate went merchants, and among them many Armenians, with green and gold skullcaps on their heads, and wearing roomy eastern gowns. These, though belonging to a special right, went with the others to represent the estate. After the merchants came with their banners the guilds, such as butchers, bakers, tailors, goldsmiths, confectioners, embroiders, linen drapers, tanners, mid-boilers, and a number of others yet. From each company, representatives went with their own banner, which was borne by a man the most distinguished of all for beauty. Then came various brotherhoods and the common throng in coats, in sheepskins, in horse blankets, in homespun, dwellers in the suburbs, peasants. Admittance was barred to no one till the church was packed closely with people of all ranks and both sexes. At last carriages began to arrive, but they avoided the main door, for the king, the bishops and the dignitaries had a special entrance nearer the high altar. Every moment the troops presented arms. At last the soldiers dropped their muskets to their feet and blew on their chilled hands, throwing out clouds of steam from their breasts. The king came with a nuncio, Vidon. Then arrived the archbishop of Gniezno and the bishop, Prince Czartoryski. Next appeared the bishop of Krakow, the archbishop of Lvov, the grand chancellor of the kingdom, many voevodas and castellans. All these vanished through the side door, and their carriages, retinues, equerries and attendants of every description formed as it were a new army standing at the side of the cathedral. Mass was celebrated by the apostolic nuncio Vidon, arrayed in purple in a white chasuble embroidered with pearls and gold. For the king, a kneeling stool was placed between the great altar and the pews. Before the kneeling stool was a Turkish sofa. The church armchairs were occupied by bishops and lay senators. Many colored rays, passing through the windows, joined with a gleam of candles with which the altar seemed burning, and fell upon the faces of the senators in the church chairs, on the white beards, on the imposing forms, on golden chains, on violet velvet. 
you would have said, a Roman senate. Such was the majesty and dignity of these old men. Here and there, among gray heads, was to be seen the face of a warrior senator. Here and there gleamed the blond head of a youthful lord. All eyes were fixed on the altar. All were praying. The flames of the candles were glittering and quivering. The smoke from the censers was playing and curling in the bright air. The body of the church was packed with heads, and over the heads a rainbow of banners was playing, like a rainbow of flowers. The majesty of the king, Jan Kazimir, prostrated itself according to his custom, in the form of a cross, and humiliated itself before the majesty of God. At last the nuncio brought from the tabernacle a chalice, and bearing it before him, approached the kneeling stool. Then the king raised himself with a brighter face. The voice of the nuncio was heard. Ece agnus dei, behold the Lamb of God. And the king received communion. For a time he remained kneeling, with inclined head. At last he rose, turned his eyes toward heaven, and stretched out both hands. There was sudden silence in the church, so that breathing was not audible. All divined that the moment had come, and that the king would make some vow. All listened with collected spirit, but he stood with outstretched arms. At last, with a voice filled with emotion, but as far-reaching as a bell, he began to speak. O great mother of divine humanity and virgin, I, in Casimir, king by the favor of thy son, king of the kings and my lord, and by thy favor approaching thy most holy feet, form this the following pact. I today choose thee, my patroness and queen of my dominions. I commit to thy special guardianship and protection myself, my Polish kingdom, the Grand Principality of Lithuania, Russia, Prussia, Mazovia, Imud, Livland, and Chernigov, the armies of both nations and all common people. I beg obediently thy aid and favor against enemies in the present affliction of my kingdom. Here the king fell on his knees and was silent for a time. In the church a death-like stillness continued unbroken. Then, rising, he spoke on, and constrained by thy great benefactions, I, with the Polish people, am drawn to a new and ardent bond of service to thee. I promise thee, in my own name and in the names of my ministers, senators, nobles, and people, to extend honor and glory to thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, through all regions of the Polish kingdom, to make a promise that when, with the mercy of thy Son, I obtain victory over the Swedes, 
I will endeavor that an anniversary be celebrated solemnly in my kingdom to the end of the world, in memory of the favor of God and of thee, O most holy virgin. Here he seized again and knelt. In the church there was a murmur, but the voice of the king stopped it quickly, and though he trembled this time with penitence and emotion, he continued still more distinctly. And since with great sorrow of heart I confess that I endure from God just punishment, which is afflicting us all in my kingdom with various plagues for seven years, because poor simple tillers of the soil drawn in suffering, oppressed by the soldiery. I bind myself on the conclusion of peace to use earnest efforts, together with the estates of the commonwealth, to free suffering peasants from every cruelty, in which, O Mother of Mercy, Queen and My Lady, since Thou hast inspired me to make this vow, obtain for me by grace of thy mercy, aid from thy Son to accomplish what I here promise. These words of the king were heard by the clergy, the senators, the nobles, and the common people. A great wail was raised in the church, which came first from the hearts of the peasants. It burst forth from them, and then became universal, all raised their hands to heaven. Weeping voices repeated, Amen, 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 in testimony that they had joined their feelings and vows with the promise of the king. Enthusiasm seized their hearts, and at that moment made them brothers in love for the commonwealth and its patroness. Indescribable joy shone on their faces like a clear flame, and in all that church there was no one who doubted that God would overwhelm the Swedes. After that service the king, amid the thunder of musketry and cannon, and mighty shouts of victory, victory, may he live, went to the castle and there he confirmed the heavenly confederation together with that of Tishovtsi. End of chapter 16